To Short Reverse Show, a film and television podcast in which you talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going? It's been a tough, uh, a tough old weekend for Glasgow, where mm. I live, and I don't want to say too much because speculation is not helpful, and I frankly don't know enough. But what I do know is pretty terrible, and just thinking of of everyone who is affected and their families. Um, so that's been very much on my mind over the past couple of days. And even without that, lockdown is, is tricky. Mm-hmm. Scotland seemed to be doing okay. There's a fair bit about what else might be able to open up over the next few weeks up here because the rates, all the rates that need to be the rates they are seem to be going in the right direction. Um, mm. But still, everyone, please wear a mask and try and limit it as outside and stuff as much as you can. Um, so I don't know. I still I still feel uh, it's, it's just that kind of sitting very still and feeling like everything is kind of falling apart. But hopefully it's getting better. I don't know. I've just had... I've, I've found it particularly difficult to... I, I wouldn't say that I'm brilliant at cheering myself up, so to speak, but I can sort of manage myself through dips. And this this is just a longer, longer, deeper ditch to get myself out of. But you know what? Mm. I did I did watch all of the first series of Sex Education, and that was delightful because I finally got around to it, Ed. That aggressively quirky marketing really put me off when it first came out. And off the back of a couple of uh, trusted friends and their um, advice, I finally gave it a watch. And I'm really delighted that there is another season coming and there's a second season for me to dig into. But I'm, I'm, I'm already doing that thing where I'm like, I have to space this one out. I can't, um, mm. I can't just hoof it in one like I did with the first series. How are you, Ed? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Um, I mean... Florida's not doing great, as I'm sure people are aware, in terms of our coronavirus cases, uh, which are just through the roof. All the numbers are going the right way for Scotland. They're going in the wrong direction for Florida. Although our our governor did reverse course and halt some of the reopening that was being planned. So that's a, a step in the right direction, but about uh, two miles after you've been going the wrong way. Oh. But, yeah, you know... It's something, and hopefully it means that, you know, they'll be a little more serious about, you know, other steps they could take, like mandating that people wear masks, which, as I mentioned last week, is pretty much something that's only being done on a local level. And the problem with that is a lot of people don't really pay attention to what's happening with the local government uh, on that small of a scale, or it's kind of hard for, like, a city council to get a message out there saying, hey, everyone, you know, wear masks, whereas... You know, if a governor were to do it and if he were to say, hey, a text message has to go to everyone's phone saying from, you know, midnight tonight, everyone has to wear a mask out in public, then 
you know, that probably do something, that would achieve something. You can definitely see that things are going to get much worse in Florida uh, before they get better. The only saving grace at the moment is that the number of deaths are relatively low because a lot of the people who are catching it now are fairly young. And, you know, even though being young is not a shield from getting coronavirus and dying from it, um, it's still, like, you're still much less likely to. Um, But the concern is that, you know, if you have hundreds of thousands of people with the disease going around unaware that they're going they have the disease eventually it's going to spread to the old and more vulnerable populations of which the state has quite a lot as a every stereotype about florida will tell you yeah so news real world news rise very depressing yeah. <laughs> week but also like you i did watch all of a tv show that i had been put off from watching because the trailer for it I found really off-putting which was uh, Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet Ah. which is the Apple TV Plus show from um, Rob McElhenney, Charlie Day and Megan Gans which is all set at a computer game company that has produced this big uh, Mamorpaga called uh, Mythic Quest and it follows them in the wake of them releasing the first big DLC patch called Raven's Banquet and as someone who's worked in the games industry for quite a long time I think um, the specifics of some of the stuff they do in terms of development kind of feel a little broad for me in terms of what the actual job in quite involves but in terms of the types of people that you meet in the industry I think it's pretty solid. I think that uh, Rob McElhenney in a role that is not dissimilar to his role as as Mac in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, playing this really uh, narcissistic, self-aggrandizing creative director of this com- of this company and the creator of the game, is really suited to that role. And he reminds me of people I've met in the industry. But the the, the strength of the show really lies in its ensemble cast. Uh, Charlotte Nickdow, who plays the, the basically the lead of the show, Polly who is the, one of the head programmers and is, you know, as a point of comparison, very much the Liz Lemon of the series, the person who's just trying to get things done and, you know, cares a little too much and is constantly stressed. Uh, she's incredibly funny. Danny Pudi's good in it as a sociopathic, like, money manager who's always trying to push them for microtransactions and things like that. Uh, F. Marie Abraham is very funny in it as mm-hmm. a old nebula winning sci-fi writer who is kind of there to help them punch up the scripts and things like that and feels constantly uh awash in it all um yeah it's just it's just a very nice well-rounded out cast of characters who over the course of the series i feel really the, the series starts okay i mean the scene that was used as the trailer is literally the opening scene of the series and that was the thing that really put me off because it all felt like a little tired and broad but I think once the show kind of gets going and it starts digging into actual things that concern in the industry like unionization and overwork and things like that which it doesn't delve into perhaps as much or as critically as would be warranted but certainly like touches on them in a way that I was not expecting I think that it kind of becomes a little stronger and has a little more of a bite to it than uh, perhaps I was expecting from a show that was produced with a lot of well maybe not input but you know like advice from like people who worked for Ubisoft you know like it's like Mm -hmm. it's not it's not produced by Ubisoft but like they I think they um, embedded with Ubisoft for a while to kind of get research and things like that so it definitely feels like a show that finds its way a lot as the series goes along and I think by the end of it 
um, is in, in a really strong place. And they also have two standout episodes, one of which is a standalone episode that takes place over the course of like 13 years from 1993 to 2006 and focuses on two entirely unrelated characters as they found their own video game studio, which is a wonderful study of a relationship between the two of them and also uh, of you know the compromises involved in making art on the sort of scale that you see in the video game industry and a quarantine special that they filmed after the pandemic started which is a really great uh, showcase for all of the actors and the characters and their dynamic um but i i really enjoyed that and i was really glad that i finally got around to watching it because for so long i was just uh, based on the, the two minutes or whatever that got shown at e3 last year i was just kind of like oh i don't really want to watch this this doesn't seem like it would have much to offer me but uh, it's pretty pretty good pretty funny well ed we've both learned a lesson this week maybe the marketing's just rubbish <laughs> yeah yeah particularly for streaming shows for some reason oh, just seems yeah almost as bad as uh, adverts for podcasts which <laughs> i don't know if, if whenever you hear an advert for a podcast you know that's trying to sell you on a show on a network but it just never seems to capture whatever seems people seem to like about a show which I always find especially true if I hear an advert for like, you know, I, I listen to a lots of Maximum Fun podcasts and I think, you know, a lot of the stuff they do there is really great. But every so often I'll hear an ad for like The Flop House, which is a show that I love dearly and I really have loved and listened to for years now. But like when they do their adverts, I'm just kind of like, this doesn't seem like an appealing show. <laughs> like they're really yeah. struggling to try and get across the energy that makes that show so such a delight. Uh, same with like... I think my brother, my brother and me are a little better at it at this point, but some of their early ads, it just kind of felt like this seems very in-jokey and not designed to appeal to new people. It seems more designed at reassuring the audience that's already there (laughs) that they're listening to a show they like. Yeah, ads for podcasts are almost like as effective as print adverts for perfume. You're like, okay, but I still don't get a sense of what this is going to make me feel. Um, The Mm. only podcast advertising that's ever worked for me is I think Great Big Owl did it at Christmas as a secret Santa kind of thing where if you were subscribed or you know following one podcast they'd just drop a different episode in oh right yeah and I was like oh that's interesting because it's already there it's kind of the next one for me if I I have a choice whether to listen to it or not but I think that works for podcasts because I think podcasts are so much in terms of word of mouth anyway Mm. that I don't think I've ever listened to a podcast off the back of an advert. Give it to me. Literally just present it to me and I yeah. will and I will listen to it. And it's the same with um I, I can't stop listening to Esther Perel at the moment. Like just more and more of her stuff. I think she's such an interesting thinker and a really great speaker. And Where Should We Begin is a phenomenal podcast in terms of it's like simultaneously a sense of access in into what therapy is like her own personal process and the how that is still able to be like very discreet <laughs> with mm. with the patients that she's seeing or her like her clients um but her other podcast housework i became aware of that because it got sort of dropped into that into that feed and i was like oh great even more esther perel just give it to me lovely <laughs> probably would have found it off my own back but it's always nice i'm you know just to be given a gift, it seems. Yeah, I think the, that approach as well, I, I always find like the best way to advocate for a podcast is literally just to say, 
you know, to say to someone, hey, listen to X episode of this star or whatever, like yes. through a word of mouth thing. Because so much of, certainly of the, the podcast that I listen to, so much of the joy of it is the, the loping conversations that can go anywhere, the bits that people kind of come up with on the fly. And it's really hard to kind of compress, you know, the appeal of listening to a podcast that's like an hour to two hours long into you know a 90 second spot that's being played in between or 30 seconds even sometimes in between bits of another podcast and all you can really do is say hey these are the people who host it this is what it's about and that's you know sometimes that can be enough if you've heard that those people on other podcasts but for the most part i feel like usually all that just that, that just kind of always comes across as really bare bones and not necessarily as appealing as, as like you say, just dropping the episode into your feed uh, the way that uh, Great Big Owl do or the way that Earwolf occasionally will do, like this week Earwolf used the, the Comedy Bang Bang feed to promote um, The Neighbourhood Listen, which is Paul F. Tompkins' new podcast, which I think has just gone outside of the paywall. And yes. I was like, oh, that's, that's a good way to get people to know that that podcast exists by putting it on their flagship show. It also feels nice if you're already a listener as an audience. It kind of feels like a loyalty rewards program. Like, hey, you might Mm -hmm. also like this. Here's extra content for you. I know what you mean, Ed. I think I've tried to sort of recommend podcasts now going forward with a specific episode. Yeah. Um, A little bit like um, the Chris Gethard show. And it's like you have to watch The Dumpster. Is that what it's called? Uh, 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 One Man's Trash. That's it. Sorry. Yeah. You can see where I (laughs) Say what you see, Emily. Because you're like, oh, I get a sense of what this is. Because sometimes it can be very tricky to get into something like from from episode one. Like I have tried and failed with the Adventure Zone with a lot of mm-hmm. um, the McElroy brothers podcast because I love those boys. But unless it's something like Monster Factory where I do feel like I can sort of dip in and out, and I think they're contained. Like the inside jokes stay within yeah each episode. I've had that recently with like Revisionist History. Um, I think I mentioned already. Um, a little while ago things like criminal and there are ones where you're like some episodes that are paradigmatic don't come first so I don't necessarily like listening to episode you know chronologically in series yeah I think I tend to have a somewhat strange approach to a, to like a new podcast for much the same reason you know that you just described where the early episodes because it's also a new medium it's a medium where often it is about people kind of like fumbling their way through to find out what it is that they they are good at in terms of the the form I, i've often had podcasts which people have said oh no this is really great and you listen to the first few episodes and you're like oh, this doesn't really this doesn't really work for me so what i have started to do is if there's a new podcast i will listen to like the 10 most recent episodes and then if they really click for me then i'll be like okay i'll listen to the early ones i'll start working through the back catalog but at the same time keeping up with the current ones which can be a little disorientating for like shows that are incredibly in jokey but for the most part it seems to work out pretty well because usually you know the show as shows as they exist now are pretty much like the most refined version of that so i always feel like you know you'll you if you enjoy what a show has become you'll probably get something out of seeing the the process of how it ended up at that point mm-hmm. i kind of yeah for sure i'll always go back i just yeah. won't necessarily yeah not necessarily my starting point the beginning yeah. is a very good place to start so i've heard ed but sometimes sometimes you just want to <laughs> uh 
get get straight to the core. Exactly. So we'll go on to the uh, news for this week, and it's been another week of the kind of like ripples of the Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on still uh, across the country in the US and I'm sure across the world as well since the death of George Floyd last month or early this month, I honestly time, who knows. But there have there have been you know kind of like ripples going out for that through a lot of different industries and I think uh, in the entertainment industry this week resulted in uh, a, couple, a couple of kind of like changes, particularly in the world of animation. I think the first instance of this was uh, Jenny Slate, who said that she would no longer be voicing the character of Missy on Big Mouth, which is uh, Missy is a, a biracial character that she's voiced over the course of the entire run of that show so far. And she put out a statement saying that black characters should be voiced by black actors, which, you know, it seems like a fairly obvious commonsensical thing. And yeah, you know, she, I think she realized that it was not really appropriate for her to be voicing a mixed-race character when she herself is not mixed-race. Then from there, there's been kind of a cascade of subsequent ones. Kristen Bell said that she won't be voicing the character of Molly on uh, Central Park, which is the Apple Plus uh, TV show from, I think, Lauren Bouchard and uh, uh, Josh Gad, which in which, uh, again, that character is uh, biracial. The Simpsons said that they won't have white actors voicing characters of colour anymore, which... You know, obviously following on from Hank Azaria stepping away from voicing a poo feels like uh, the right move on their part because they've been doing that a lot for a long time. And then most recently, Mike Henry said that he won't be voicing the character of Cleveland Brown on Family Guy anymore, a character that he's voiced since that show started in 1999. And on the one hand, these are all like positive steps in the sense that, you know, uh, animation is by and large, and the American animation is by and large very uh, white dominated in terms of the people who are hired to record voices and there aren't a huge amount of opportunities for people of colour to actually voice characters of colour because there is a long tradition of just hiring white people to do those voices regardless of you know the propriety or the offensiveness that they're involved, uh, therein involved but on the other hand, it kind of feels like nibbling around the edges of injustice, you know, to um, to bring it to a, a change in the political realm, which is, is currently ongoing. You know, in Mississippi, they just had a vote yesterday to begin the process of removing the Confederate flag from the Mississippi state flag. You know, um, Mississippi is the only state in the Union that still has the Confederate flag as part of its flag. Mm. And, yeah, and obviously... Uh, at this time the pressure that's been mounting from this and people rightly saying hey this is a symbol of you know that represents a um, avowedly white supremacist and racist uh, institution the confederacy something that existed primarily to maintain slavery in the united states and which resulted in tremendous death and suffering during the civil war and for the 150 something years since maybe we shouldn't have it in our flag maybe that would be a good idea you know, that's a nice symbolic move. Doesn't mean that, you know, Mississippi is going to become any less racist of a place because it's still pretty racist. But, you know, like, so, so on the one hand, you think this is a, a, these moves, you know, replacing these actors with um, actors who, you know, are people of colour is good, but also, you know, it's not really doing anything to affect the systemic problems that may come from, you know, largely white writers' rooms people who are not having opportunities to create animated shows you know like it, it very much feels like a 
good move, but a decidedly modest one. And the money. Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of Jenny Slate's statement that I read, she said that she felt that she could play Missy because she was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And again, it's that, oh, like, black voice is such a something that we're only just starting to unpick really and Mm. again it's that thing of like oh but you're watching a character so surely that's representation and it's and it's not like there is that's a projection rather than representation right and it made me think of uh rick and morty as well Mm. with the therapist character who's voiced by susan sarandon And I I think they were trying to get around it by saying that, like, well, she's... Is it Dr. Wong, her name? Uh, That sounds right, yeah. It's been a while since I've seen that episode, but yeah, I think that's right. Same, because, of course, you know, Pickle Rick. And this is an episode written by Jessica Gao, who's amazing and has her own podcast called Whiting Wongs with Dan Harmon um, that I haven't Mm -hmm. listened to for a while, but one I did listen to was essentially Jessica Gao doing a lot of emotional labour trying to get Dan Harmon round to (laughs) appreciating... Uh, racism amongst other things Mm -hmm. and i think someone was saying like oh but dr wong could have married a mr wong and i think that's okay yeah but wow that that rasping sound i hear is i believe straws being clutched at particularly because Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't like she was drawn to be a caucasian person either yeah and it's not like rick and morty needed susan sarandon to boost their profile in any way and if you want susan sarandon i'm sorry this is a show that you know has assimilating multi-dimensional beings and yet we can't sort this out Mm -hmm. and i think it's kind of astounding that so many actors think it's fine to do this because it's only and i'm heavy air quotes sorry (laughs) only a voice um mm. and with Kristen Bell as well. I was like, oh yeah, I thought I thought we'd we'd I thought it's just consistent disappointment from people who you who are being like allies and doing sort of social work in other ways. And mm. yeah, you're like, really now in Anno Domini 2020 still, and not that long before. And uh Raphael Bob Waxberg talking about Alison Brie as Diane and saying, you know, that was, and, and that's not the only instance of, of in Bojack Horseman either. Um, and saying like, I'm not ready for this conversation because I think I'm just a coward. And so mm-hmm. I should just have it. Um, and I think that's something that more people should say. <laughs> it's generally like, I don't know what to say about this. Uh, Cause I'm a coward and, and I made this decision and it was, you know, not great. And I think, as you were saying, they're nibbling around the edges of justice. I think it was Malcolm X who said, you know, about the difference between symbolic victories and like the actual real victories that activists are fighting for. And the two people that I want to, um, the comments I want to signal boost in terms of The Simpsons, um, Harry Kondabolu, who mm. did a whole documentary <laughs> um, about Apu and highlighting the issues with that two days ago tweeted um regarding the simpsons using people of color to voice minority characters 
all it took was 30 years, a documentary, more relevant shows doing it first, and a conversation about racism spurred by police brutality and murder, going off social media now until next wave of death threats pass. Which is, oh, I mean, I just, it's, he shouldn't be have to be put in that position. And I also think it's quite sweet that he said a documentary rather than my documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a refreshing sort of... Uh, so a hint of a lack of ego there, which I, I admire. And you're like, yeah, this is, it's, it's, it's nibbling around its crumbs. And then Ashley, uh, Ashley Nicole Black, um, I actually appreciate folks who are looking for ways to address racism in their industries by deleting episodes, renaming things, changing vocabulary, etc. But friends, if you're looking for racism in your industry, look at how employees are hired and treated. That's mm. where it is. Um, and um, a recent essay on Medium by a former employee of Cards Against Humanity. Oh, God, yeah, who, I read that. That was oh awful. Oh, my God. Who, yeah, who, for anyone who wasn't aware, um, was put, was, was institutionalized by the company mm-hmm. for deigning to um, speak up, which reminded me of the Channel 4 adaptation of Poppy Shakespeare. Oh yeah, yeah. Which was a novel that everyone's raved about, and I wasn't massively keen on, but I actually really liked the TV adaptation, and it's an incredible performance by Naomi Harris. And I think it was very canny and important casting to make Poppy black, because as far as I remember, it's not really explicitly stated in the book. It's a kind mm. of, it's more about her characteristics rather than her sort of physical attributes and yeah it it made me think this is it's nothing it's nothing new but it's still I mean maybe it's shocking to us Ed because we are white um and I was certainly brought up to believe that racism was present but not as awful as it is now but that is kind of the liberals way out of like oh but it's if we look statistically <laughs> mm. it's much better and i'm like i think one person being murdered because of the color of their skin is capital b bad i don't i don't mm-hmm. need like i'm sorry there's percentages here that's atrocious and yeah and you also mentioning there about the deleting episodes that kind of takes us on to the next story which is that uh this week a bunch of episodes of television produced in the not too distant past uh, were removed from streaming services because of their use of blackface. The the most notable probably being one of the live episodes of Thirty Rock, which featured John Hamm in blackface during uh, a sequence that was meant to mock the kind of racial attitudes of fifties television. The uh, episode of Community where they play Dungeons and Dragons, where uh, Chang appears in blackface as a dark elf, uh, and a couple of episodes of Scrubs, which I totally don't remember any of Blackface and Scrub but apparently there was some, maybe it was after I stopped watching um, and also uh, an episode from one of the later seasons of The Office in which a character dresses up as the, I want to say Dutch uh, figure of Black Peter, which is a uh, D- Dutch or Danish, one, one of those one of those countries, um, which is a, a tradition of wearing Blackface around Christmas time which they were making fun of, uh, but that episode, uh, that that scene from that episode has been taken down. The episode itself, I think, is still up. But you know, the, the Hulu and Netflix, whoever has the rights to the Office now, is has taken it out. 
And, you know, we talked a little bit about this as well with the, the Mr. Show sketch. Not Mr. Show, the With Dog Bob and David sketch, which was taken down last week. Mm. And on one level, like I think, yeah, it, it's it's fine for them to, to take this, these episodes down, take them down because it, they are they contain offensive material. There are people who have watched those who are probably like really offended by the use of blackface, even in these kind of like couched in this sense of irony and things like that. But at the same time, it also, because so many companies are now jumping on the train of doing it, it feels less like a attempt to take into account people's sensitivities and, you know, to try and do the right thing than it is a sense of brand protection for the shows in the oh, sense yeah. of them wanting to take the stuff out so that people won't criticise them and they won't impact the legacy and people don't have to feel complicated feelings about the fact that, you know, 30 Rock had a blackface scene. Similarly, Tina Fey and The Simpsons both responded to those initial so being being highlighted by Harry Kondabolu uh, and various other people in terms of not not just blackface, but like including um, those sort of concerns about casting and representations. Mm. Both both of them retorted with weird episodes that were like very knowing and like snide. And to me, that means that I completely agree with you. That's evidence that this is only like brand protection because of the huge pressure globally and the focus that that's the only reason that this is happening this is not from the good the good of their <laughs> not racist hearts mm. it's the pressure of anti-racism that's actually making this happen and ironic racism if you're doing it like as a sort of hipster joke is still racism i'm sorry in terms of irony like i felt really weird in terms of like looking back at a lot of sasha baron cohen's stuff yeah because i guess it there's something different because he is actually using that in a sort of comedic entrapment mm-hmm. it's not just him in front of a screen being ho ho i'm 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 taking the piss out of racists he's like i'm actively exposing them because <laughs> uh, yeah. he did a, a recent prank sort of um i'm not even going to repeat the lyrics ed um everyone <laughs> can go and find the video for themselves but essentially sort of getting people and i'm not using like much cajoling at all ed let's remember um it's just kind of making people feel secure enough that they're with one of their own shall we say mm-hmm. and also the fact that sasha baron cohen is um instrumental in activism against kind of racism and abuse and um, misinformation on facebook and other social platforms and you know, stop funding hate and things where i'm like yeah, I think that's how you do it, guys. <laughs> um, yeah. And to treat people's lives and pain as an intellectual exercise and to use the kind of the humour defence and like Schrodinger's douchebag is just, we need to move move beyond that and anyone who gets left behind can stay there. Or, you know, mm. just uh, join Parlour. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the, the hip new place for people who are not hip. In fact, who have ideas that are pretty old. <laughs> because that is the only possibly piece of really good news this week, isn't it, Ed? Yes, various people deciding that they're done with Twitter and running over to Parlour, where people will not have to hear from them ever again, including, of course, Graham Linehan, uh, who, after years of tweeting misinformation and abuse and just generally being a horrible transphobe, finally got permanently banned from Twitter, which... 
Again, probably a thing that should have happened a long time ago because it's not like any of this behavior was new, but uh, kind of it kind of felt nice when the news kind of went around. It's like, oh, legit, they finally they finally did it. The the mad bastards, they finally did it. They finally took him off of the platform, which is just very nice, you know. As as someone who, you know, was a big fan of his work as a young lad, as I'm sure a lot of people were, a lot of people love Father Ted and Black Books and I certainly less did. less so the IT crowd, but you know, like he was very much a formative comedic voice for me. Seeing his hard turn away to from uh, you know, just being a decent person to just being a real hate monger over the last several years and using his big platform to do it was really distressing to see especially seeing the harm that it was causing to people to, you know to trans people out in the world and allies and things like that so yeah fuck him <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and what was also pointed out to me which i remember vaguely from back in the day because i had one mildly pleasant Twitter exchange with him when Count Arthur Strong was on TV mm. and I was chatting about it with uh, and it's a consecutive week of a mention for a friend of the podcast Simon Jenkins mm-hmm. we were having a back and forth about it and I didn't I don't think I tagged him in it I just said Graham Linehan and he sort of popped up and was like oh yes you're right I very much I you know I put a lot of myself into sort of Rory Kinnear's character and I was like oh that's nice it's also a bit weird now looking back on it like he's clearly searching his own name <laughs> and he also would post odd things showing sex workers in porn with their sort of bare faces and then wearing makeup like lots of makeup and him being like this is so sad I was like what why is that like I remember at the time and this was before I went into porn studies um, for my masters, like in, in um, my brief my brief foray into academia, and I was just like, that's such an odd thing to do. Like, why why do you think it's a real shame girls are wearing, well, women are wearing makeup, particularly for like their job? Like, that's mm-hmm. not the point here, is it? Because you wouldn't say that about like someone wearing lots of makeup as an as an actor to appear different. And again, I mean, I'm I'm talking more like. I'm, I'm not talking about our previous subject in the news, Ed. Um, yeah. <laughs> and someone said, yeah, he sort of directed this towards sex workers before. Like, he's always been a bully. And and the fact that he leaned so hard into this. And it shows how awful turf ideology is in Britain, in particular. Because he was encouraged and mm. and... And again, like, it is entirely his responsibility. He's done horrific things, like libelous things and very damaging things. But that was ignited by a wider, you know, a wider force of people out there. Like, turfism is not gone because mm. he is. Twitter is, will be a significantly better place now he's gone. Ditto Katie Hopkins. Oh, God, yeah. Um, but again, just because he's not able to enact abuse and harm on Twitter doesn't mean that he can't elsewhere, which is um, a tricky thing. But yep, he's been so spectacularly owned um, and there's so <laughs> little good going on at the moment, Ed. I'm going to absolutely take that one to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, there was another slightly nice bit of news, which was uh, it was announced 
today or in the last couple of days that we're getting a new Beyonce film yes. slash visual album called uh, Black is King, which will be debuting on Disney Plus on July the 31st of this year. And it is an extrapolation of the album she did last year as, as tied into her work with The Lion King. She did uh, an album called The Lion King, The Gift, which was not songs from The Lion King, but original songs of hers that were kind of built upon the themes of and story of The Lion King. And so this will be building off of that. I'm very excited about it. I really loved what she did with Lemonade. I thought that Homecoming was like really spectacular. I think she's a really... She's really grown into an interesting visual artist over the course of the last few years of her really kind of doing more of that sort of thing. And I'm really excited to watch she to see what she does with that. Not massively happy about the fact this might be the thing that gets me to sign up for Disney Plus after you know, holding out for so long. But I'll, you know, free trials, you know. <laughs> watch it watch it a bunch of times and then uh, leave. I'm sure that'll be fine. That and maybe the Mandalorian. It looks stunning. I cannot wait. She has, um, as far as I'm aware, reunited with a lot of like um, artists that she also collaborated with on Lemonade, um, including mm. production designer Hannah Bleacher. So yeah, I can't wait. And it's amazing that she's had this kind of, this is the thing that she's been working on. And again, like, what what a time, Ed. I don't know. I'm not I'm not necessarily the, vo- the voice that needs to... Um, needs to cut on Beyonce but I'm very excited to see it I think it looks I mean epic doesn't even really cover Beyonce anymore mm. does it I think it's like on the scale it's kind of you know ruddy big blockbuster epic Beyonce that's the scale now isn't it mm. yeah although again as, as with many things that have come out this year kind of feels sad that it probably won't play on a big screen I mean maybe that was never in the cards maybe it was always going to be uh, on on a streaming service, much as how Lemonade debuted initially on HBO, but yeah, seems like seems like something that would benefit from people being able to see it as like a, a fathom event or something, you know, some sort of big one-off thing where people could go see it in a big screen. But obviously, that's not going to happen unless she wants to kill a lot of people, and who knows? Like maybe that's part of her part of her journey. Um, <laughs> Before we go on to our main topic, we had some sad news this week, which was the news that Joel Schumacher had passed away at the age of 80. Uh, Joel Schumacher, of course, was the director of just a huge number of movies over the course of a very, very long and very varied career. I think, you know, first really came to prominence in the 80s with things like St. Elmo's Fire and The Lost Boys, uh, early 90s with Flatliners. And then in the mid-90s became sort of notorious amongst you know, nerds for directing his two Batman films, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. And then that, I can't say it killed his greatly, worked plenty since then, but there was definitely a sense that from then he had a large group of haters who were just constantly going after him for everything he did. But, you know, he also, but after that he worked fairly consistently on things like uh, Flawless and 8mm, a movie that I remember watching late at night on BBC Two or something and being absolutely terrified by a fairly misbegotten adaptation of Phantom of the Opera. Uh, he was just a, a, a man of tremendously uh, flamboyant choices, as I think you would often see in things like 
obviously you know the, the garishness that you see in his Batman movies or you know in something like uh, the movie Tigerland which I watched recently for a podcast about Joel Schumacher uh, the episode of which won't be released for ages but you know there's a, there's a sex scene in that movie which you know it's, it's otherwise a movie that's this kind of very grim Vietnam War training thing and there's a sex scene in it involving uh, Colin Farrell which I'm going to say is pretty obviously directed by a gay man very very uh very uh, appreciative of of a naked colin farrell that uses lots of like really bright colors to signify that it's meant to take place in new orleans and yeah he was he was not someone whose work i you know i can't say i loved all of his movies but he was a very interesting filmmaker who was very distinctive and i certainly as a kid remember seeing his two batman movies and being just like Re- really enjoying them as just these kind of like really just like massively over the top and silly <laughs> works of of pop filmmaking you know any any movie with uh, a bat credit card probably isn't meant to be taken that seriously i think it's fair to say i had batman forever it was a um recorded off itv vhs mm-hmm. job and i watched it like over and over again as a kid i think because it was just looking back on it now it's like because it was so camp it was mm-hmm. it was really fun and had sort of stakes but in that kind of comic book tradition that was sort of bordering on kind of like a rubber fetish i think i've forgotten yeah. the name of the twitter user who tweeted this so i apologize and it's brilliant because i sent it to you ed where mm-hmm. um it's nicole kidman's impressively red taloned fingers like kind of pouring over the the front of his bat suit and it just says um no solvy crimes just touchy rubber <laughs> <laughs> I was like to be honest I kind of missed that after mm. um years of uh the discourse and fucking joker I mean I hope Joel Schumacher just kind of kicked back and was like how, how ridiculous that was and there's and there's lots of stuff going around about how many queer filmmakers have been inspired by him and that he was out and gay and that that was in a lot of his films, but it wasn't, it wasn't like he made gay films, so to speak. Like, yes, Batman Mm. Forever was camp. Batman and Robin is like hilariously. I think they just went like full, full board over and everyone's like, Oh, it's one of the worst movies. I'm like, it's one of the most entertaining movies you can ever see. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's wincingly bad because he's pushing it to the end, you know, the Lost Boys, like falling down, like falling down, mm. you know, is not coded in any way as a queer film. And that just goes to show, like, and as we're talking at this, like, peak point of what representation means and ensuring diversity and opportunities, it's not just that, for example, black and queer people, you know, they are the ones that should tell their own stories, but it doesn't mean that they can't tell other stories. And I think that's the threat. That's what a lot of racists are (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and and white supremacy in in hollywood and and in those kind of things is a is a thing and i also watched disclosure this week which i really recommend it's horrific that it has to be made in the first place and that people should have to essentially put forward arguments as to why they should exist when they have done and, and and without you know abuse and oh it's just horrific but and disclosure. Specifically trans people you're talking about for people who don't understand what disclosure uh, is. Yes, apologies. Disclosure is um, a documentary on Netflix that I think Laverne Cox was sort of part, had a big mm-hmm. part in sort of exec producing it, but it's 
only interviews trans and non-binary people. Mm. And there's something really refreshing about not seeing a single cis person come in and be like, I'm a professor of gender and I'm an ally. And, you know, no, this is just their space. And kind of, and I think it's um, Lily Wachowski in particular is talking and sort of going back to the Matrix and people sort of reading trans into that. And she was like, well, no, but I was just very angry. <laughs> <laughs> like the anger is what sticks out to me the most. And I'm like, that's interesting. Because I think a lot of Joel Schumacher stuff, even if it's not like queer isn't like baked into its codedness um it is arch and that's hmm. his that is his individual vision right it, and it can be part of the queer canon of course he was he was he sort of was able to make the films that he wanted to make hmm. it yeah. seems because hey you're, you're more than just your sexuality or your gender who knew exactly so we'll go on to our main topic this week which is I guess kind of the intersection of video games and movies. This was inspired by a tweet that did the rounds uh, in the other, in the week after the review embargo for The Last of Us Part Two went up, uh, and people started posting their thoughts. Of it. A, a guy called uh, Jeff Kanata posted a tweet in which he compared it to Schindler's List, which got uh, a lot of very funny responses to people because it was such a you know, a very hyperbolic, as people tend to be when they're, you know, posting their thoughts on Twitter, you know, people tend to, to fall for hyperbole, but very hyperbolic in a way that, you know, kind of real, real um, that kind of uh, runs into crassness because obviously you're comparing a, a video game where you're running around stabbing people in the neck to, you know, this very kind of weighty, important movie about the Holocaust and, that got me think that and a video that uh, Jim Sterling, who's a video game critic and, and YouTuber, did where he kind of like talked about that instance and, and what it kind of says about the push for, you know, making games more cinematic. It, it kind of got me thinking about the relationship between films and and video games and, and to a lesser extent television and how this desire for you know, kind of comparing it to a, this very weighty, serious you know, movie, best picture winning movie that was such a, a, a cultural touchstone, speaks to a long running dynamic between film and video games, which is a, a, an inferiority complex from video game critics and fans and developers. This idea that, you know, that video games is somehow, uh, video games are somehow a lesser form that because they're not taken as seriously uh, you know how this also goes back to the mid 2000s when Roger Ebert famously said that video games cannot be art and everyone lost their mind over it instead of like being like ah who cares he's an old man uh, I think video games can be art and I disagree with him instead just kind of everyone just trying so hard to kind of articulate the case and try and convince him rather than realising that you know he was in his 60s and like it's very hard to convince people older people that a newer form is kind of like worth their time anyway and so I kind of like wanted to talk about about that what this says about where the two media are are at this point and yeah I guess uh, the, the place that is that sense of of inferiority where I think because video games are a new medium compared to film film obviously has been around for a hundred years or so the video games you know even the earliest time for when you want to talk about a video game you're talking like you know 
early 70s maybe but you know as a commercially available thing that lots of people play you're really talking just in the last 30 40 years or so and i think you see that every time a new medium comes up you know when film came about it was looked down as inferior uh, as inferior to the stage because you know I, i'm reading a book at the moment about the history of japanese cinema and the, the early section of that is all about how many of the early japanese films were literally just recording short scenes of like noe actors and um kabuki actors performing scenes as a kind of form of posterity that was in the sense that it was this thing that could exist in its own right and to be a medium that's, that's expressive in its own way and i feel like video games are still very much in that that stage where even though the medium has evolved a lot over the years and even though you know particularly in the indie uh, scene there are games of tremendous complexity and innovation and that can be you know genuinely very kind of like moving and affecting there is still this sense that you know it's a junior medium it shouldn't be taken seriously and that that rile that riles video game fans because they feel it should be taken seriously and it riles fans of film and books and plays who are like why do you want us to take this seriously i feel like when you suggested this topic to me and it immediately made me think of these kind of discussions and this sort of faux battle between art and entertainment Mm. as if one is worthier than another that they're a hierarchy and that they're somehow mutually exclusive and it made me think of kind of but within kind of media themselves like comic books versus graphic novels Mm -hmm. um and the kind of the dawn of what would become the peak tv age and golden age of tv with sort of largely agreed to be hbo sort of coming yeah. in and, and onto the market and the home the whole reason it's it's home box office it's the idea that it's this isn't tv it's hbo and, and again like what movies versus films and like mm. cinema um and i don't know how far we get with again it, well it's like infighting isn't it <laughs> and 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 with stand up too people sort of accusing Hannah Gadsby and Nanette as not being funny. And there's a lot of still really interesting discourse and like discussion that's come off the back of Nanette that isn't necessarily saying that it's not funny. Mm. It's more about like, oh, but what else, um, what else is she saying here? And, and that's actual like criticism rather than I think if we sort of try and say this constant fight between lowbrow and highbrow is essentially tantamount to snobbery and Mm. and is often actually very classist and really just kind of futile i think i think also it it art is so loaded a word as well in this situation like the the question because art is it's subjective you know it is what you determine to be art is entirely down to you and there are critical consensuses about what art is meant to be but they are consensus is often formed around around older forms so like it's no surprise that someone like roger ebert would say that video games can't be art or that you know like a mark kermode i remember was very like dismissive when uh, they had him play some wii games for Newsnight. night uh, where you're just kind of like oh yeah of course they're not gonna you know have particular kind of interest in it it's not the medium that they're familiar with you know they're judging it by their own set of aesthetic qualities and they're kind of judging it in terms of like how well does this tell a story or whatever like that whereas i would argue that video games until you know fairly recently 
they've not necessarily been kind of like a great storytelling medium. You can tell great stories in video games and things like that, but like the thing that I think of in terms of like what makes a good video game are, you know, what does it feel like? What is the experience like? You know, yeah. like the found the found experiences that you get from going around like to cite a very recent a recentish example, like I think the reason why so many people fell in love with Breath of the Wild, the most recent Legend of Zelda game, is because the story of it is incredibly... Th- the story of it is the same as the story has been for Legend of Zelda since the 1980s, which is Link has to save the princess. You know? Mm. Like, if you were to break down what the story is, it's that. He's got to defeat Ganondorf. You know, there's there's slight variations on the theme, but there's always, you know, Hyrule's in danger. He's got to go and fight Ganondorf. This time, he's woken up after a thousand years and the, the kingdom's in ruins and things like that. But it's, it's basically the same thing. He goes to fight a bunch of... He goes to a bunch of dungeons and fights guardians and you know etc it's not that different from how the game's been for a very long time what's different is the openness of it the fact that you go out into this you start on this plateau you learn all of your moves and then you just go out and they say okay do what you like and there is a critical path to the game that you can follow that you know you can do them in a certain order but for the most part you can just kind of like run around you can find stuff to do you can play around with the physics and figure out how to you know oh if you set some stuff on fire the updraft will allow you to kind of like fly through the air and all this sort of stuff and there are so many videos of people online just kind of like discovering weird funny odd things that you could do like i remember there was a video i think it was a polygon video around about the time they came out where one of the video teams showed that they could complete a puzzle in a way that totally wasn't intended like there was a puzzle where you're meant to drop two like two metal things so they form a circuit and you know kind of course electricity around it and what this uh the 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 team member had done is they had just basically taken everything metal they had in their inventory and laid it on the ground and that did conduct the electricity and you're able to complete the puzzle in a way that totally wasn't uh, intended and that is for me where the art of video games kind of comes in it's the experience that people make for themselves it's their own individual experience which even in except in like visual novels or you know games that are really fairly restrictive in terms of what they require a player to do like something like um florence the um mobile game uh, that charts the kind of like beginning and end of a relationship which is done entirely through completing little puzzles that's pretty much a straightforward game everyone's going to have more or less the same experience of it except in instances like that so much of the art of video games for me at least in terms of what makes them a special and unique medium are down to the fact that you we will all play a game differently we'll all have our own approach to it and in there in that lies kind of like the, the joy of them is the joy of discovery and exploration for sure and i'd say for me because whenever we start talking about games i have to just talk about the stanley parable because it's mm. still in a similar way that nanette was a watershed moment in comedy the stanley parable was watershed in gaming to me because i think it's really impressive to be able to be sort of meta and knowing but like inclusive of what Mm -hmm. like being able to sort of take apart gaming what in a game and what 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 is like free will what is choice and but but not then kind of 
particularly in the Stanley Parable, it doesn't leave you with any kind of set conclusions and with multiple endings, you're like, do I win this? Is this like mm-hmm. an, an interactive, cheeky philosophy essay? Like, what, what is this? I would say fundamentally it's a game and that there is some element of interactivity to it, which again, sort of Netflix and its um, exploration into an interactive stuff. Uh, with Bandersnatch and Kimmy Schmidt versus the Reverend and Puss in Boots. And I'd say that Puss in Boots kind of makes the most sense because that is for kids. And I think maybe there's a certain element of like interactivity and attention that also helps because that feels more like a game or kind of like a choose your own adventure story for kids. And, and maybe it's kind of like a game for children who don't necessarily who are too young or, or don't necessarily have the access to a console like let's not forget like mm. netflix is incredibly cheap and, and an option for many parents to kind of have their kids engaged in some peace for a bit like that is a totally legitimate parenting choice and bandersnatch as well it, i think worked because it's all about games as well it yeah. is kind of <laughs> it is a it's an interactive multi-branched piece of television written by a former games critic that mm. is more about games and i think again the kind of capitalizing on on, a, on people's attention like if you're watching and again i'm sort of air quoting that bandersnatch you're not really watching it's not a passive thing it's actively trying to get you involved in the experience more to kind of avoid you second screening as you're doing it even though there was of course a lot of chat on twitter about it um that wasn't happening you know, it's it's not like Netflix has to say like, "Are you still watching Bandersnatch?" Because that's <laughs> part of the point is is you you need to be engaged with it. And coming back to the kind of kick off to this point, oh my word! Like, it is so odd this kind of lofty reach of trying to make a game. And I mean, The Last of Us Two, I've not played. I played most of the first one, and I found it quite. Um, I I always just really like the simplicity of sort of naughty dog games in that in that way. Like it's not, the focus is not on, for example, like Fallout got really unwieldy for me. Kind of the most recent mm. ones because it's like God, there's just so many different items that you can fashion. There's so many different places you can go, and I yeah. actually like something that has a bit more of a just just quite a simple game mechanic. So it's like you you know you don't have like this huge arsenal of weapons. You have to and it's kind of stripping back from the sort of maximalism of a lot of games. Mm, yeah. And The Last of Us 2, I mean, I I don't know. It's kind of a weird feeling when it's like, I mean, having a storyline in a game that makes you emotional, which is a bit more than like, this is how Link saves the princess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm still just reeling because I thought Jim Sterling's video is so perfect in terms of being like, well, here's a list of films that are more like The Last of Us 2, which I mm. thought was a really salient point because it's not to say that you can't, you, you should be able to compare your experience of something to something else. I don't think that's like inherently poor criticism. Mm-hmm. I think it's in terms of just saying, oh, there's other things that you like fine but how how is it like schindler's list and that's (laughs) at all apart from like maybe it gave me sads or i was kind of impressed by the visual aspects of it but of all of all the films to choose it just feels like is that the only film you've watched 
Mm. Yeah, that's that was the point I was gonna I was gonna make as well. It speaks more to a lack of knowledge of movies yeah. than that that was the thing you would reach for. But it also speaks to a, and this is true, I think, also in television and a lot of the prestige television that's kind of emerged over the last decade or so. A confusion of of brutality with seriousness or that that something can only be emotional if it's extreme and like that seems to be where it's coming from like you're reaching for an extreme comparison because this game is so like you know by all accounts so kind of like brutal in its violence and the story kind of like makes you make these horrible choices that you know are, are really quite nasty and that is you know kind of i think in both instances both in television and in in games i think it's kind of an immature approach to it to think that a story has to really put you through the ringer to be meaningful is Mm. not helpful in terms of gauging you know if something is kind of like emotionally kind of powerful for me in terms of like games that i've played in recent years that i found really emotionally affecting like one of the ones from the last couple of years that I loved was a game called Celeste, which was a a, a, plat, a platformer exploration game where you play this young woman who's trying to climb a mountain, and it's all about you know precise jumps and double jumps and navigating through all of these different areas until you can eventually get to the top. And on that level, it's fantastic. It's like this really difficult game, but really rewarding when you succeed in it. But the story is all about this young woman's anxiety. Mm. She is uh, someone who is trying in some ways to escape from the problems in her life she's someone who has all of these kind of like problems you know kind of like existing in the world essentially and these come through mainly in the conversations that happen between uh between the levels you know these kind of like nicely animated little uh, cutscenes. but it's also playing out through the form of it in that you're playing a game that also is quite stressful as <laughs> you're just like jumping around avoiding spikes and just trying to make sure that you get the uh, the right uh, timing on your jumps and things like that and I found that to be tremendously emotionally affecting because it was a game that had this like really beautiful simple aesthetic that you know it wasn't something that was constantly shoving your face (laughs) in the kind of like the awfulness of life it was very much just about creating this mood of like anxiety and uh, ultimately reaching a catharsis both emotionally for the character and for you as the player thinking yes I beat this really hard game and that that to me is more important as a gaugement of like whether or not games can be art or whether they can genuinely kind of produce powerful emotions in you than just saying oh we made a game where horrible things happen for 40 hours yeah <laughs> which also i think points points to a problem with just a lot of these games now where they're so expensive to make that there's this real push to like okay we need to make them as long as possible to yeah. feel like people are getting their money's worth and also you know put in ways to monetize it post-release and things like that which you know are not great for pacing a story like it's very hard i think to tell a really engaging story over over that length of time and especially in a medium where for me personally like the story of games even of games i really like is less important than the experience of playing them like i've been playing through uncharted 4 recently another naughty dog game and 
that's a game which I think has a, a stronger narrative element than the previous three and you know in terms of the acting and the writing and the production they're, they're kind of a step up from the previous ones but the most kind of like fun stuff in that for me is like you know there's one encounter which you get an achievement for if you bypass it entirely if you sneak through this graveyard without being spotted or killing anyone mm. and I just spent ages and ages trying to get it. Eventually I didn't because I think I was just playing it on too hard a difficulty for them not to spot you. So I'll go back and play it on a lower difficulty later. But, you know, the experience of planning out a route, seeing where all these various goons are at various points so that I know when to quickly make a run for it and to hide in the grass and things like that. That is the part of that game that feels great to me. And that's the part of it that I find, like, especially engaging is the... The, the, the kind of like the pus- the puzzly element of it of like trying to work out the best way to do things and the actual puzzles as well but even in the combat you know just trying to figure out how can I get through this encounter stealthily killing these guys before they see me so that I don't have to get into a big raging gunfight yeah and there's something just really satisfying about that isn't there and it doesn't necessarily mm. have to be like if you're in the mood for something stealthy such as mm. what you've just described, Ed. Brilliant. But just all of my friends who have Animal Crossing, and yeah. I, I don't have um, a Switch, um, boohoo, but my, my friends who do and her playing Animal Crossing, it's basically been their lifeline to, mm. to stay calm and feel engaged in a way that maybe watching something on a screen doesn't. Yeah. And... I would say that as well, I think there's something to be said for, I think the way that a game is produced is so incredible. Like just thinking of the scenery in Uncharted 4 and Mm. I'm sorry, would you like to draw a raccoon in a Hawaiian shirt that's cuter than Tom Nook? I would struggle. (laughs) And that's art, isn't it? That's like art design. That's what that is. And I think there is still this kind of asceticism that that i struggle with a lot in kind of film and and uh games and comedy in particular and it's the idea that if you have fun or if you enjoy yourself that's somehow base i think it Mm. still comes from like this like ancient sort of puritan standing that that is kind of about like oh no you have to kind of take your culture as your as your medicine slash it's also kind of like sunday school and it's instructions on how to live but no joy absolutely no joy though because (laughs) that that way leads to kind of like like somehow you're being selfish whereas actually like particularly with animal crossing seeing how it's brought so many of my friends together and that they can hang out and have birthday parties in animal crossing and stuff like that Mm. like how is that not a really beautiful thing and it doesn't have to be like like beauty doesn't actually have to be like lofty you know to be worthwhile and I think that's it, like art and entertainment when they're mixed together is really, really special. We shouldn't punish ourselves when there are plenty of people that actually are the ones who should be punished and the systems, frankly. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there's also something of a generational thing as well in that, you know, a lot of the people who are very sniffy about video games are people who are, you know, older and have grown up or or, or are people who, you know, were adults when the industry was first starting to gain ground and so never had interest in it or were people who grew up like thinking it was ah, it's just like kid stuff it's not something to be taken seriously and 
you know, I feel like that is something that you also see in film, like, you know, different generations of film. When Jaws first came out, you know, there were lots of reviewers who were like, oh, this is great, but there were lots of, I think there was a lot of sniffiness about it in terms of, like, you know, it's this big popcorn entertainment thing, but it's not, you know, not something to be taken too seriously. And now people are going to say, oh, yeah, obviously, one of the greatest films ever made, and, you know, this, like, tremendous work of popular art. And, you know, I think I would probably say the exact same thing about, like, Tetris. I would totally hold up Tetris as one of the great works of art of the latter part of the 20th century from a design point of view. It's obviously this, like, wonderfully simplistic thing that works so well from a... Uh, from the aesthetic in terms of you know the the combination of the blocks and the music and everything like that and and just in terms of ease of access like literally anyone can play tetris and you know not everyone can be good at tetris because it very quickly becomes hard as hell but it is totally like a work of, of art and a very singular thing and something that is like totally unique to video games like there is no like, it'd be funny to see someone try and make a Tetris movie as they often talk about, you know, various film studios have had the rights to it and have tried to adapt it, but it really is something that is unique to to Tetris. I think also that, more broadly, is one of the problems that you see with video game adaptations in the a movie adaptation of a video game often is just kind of like, okay, what's the plot? And how can we, you know, do some action scenes around it? Mm. Whereas like the joy about video games is often so separate from the plot like you know Uncharted is obviously the big white whale that they've been trying to make for a really long time and which I think is finally coming out next year maybe but that one is very much one where you look at it and you say if this was an accurate adaptation it would be 10% story 90% you know Tom Holland running around trying to pick up trinkets from the ground (laughs) (laughs) So we end this episode, as we end all our episodes, with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. I'll kick us off this week. I am going to recommend uh, a movie from 2020. Yes, they still exist. There are still <gasps> movies that came out this year that maybe were intended to be seen in theatres but are now uh, available on streaming in various places. I watched Josephine Decker's Shirley, which is about the writer Shirley Jackson, who uh, obviously wrote The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House and things like that. And the story takes place in 1951, and it's all about uh, Shirley Jackson, played by Elizabeth Moss, who's obviously fantastic and is great in everything, and her husband, played by Michael Stubarg, who also great in everything, who take in a young couple, played by uh, Odessa Young and Logan Lerman, who uh, to kind of like help them around the house because Shirley Jackson is a little bit of a recluse who kind of is is trying to work on a novel uh, which uh, called Hangs a Man, eventually ended up being released as Hangs a Man, all about. Uh, inspired by a young woman who went missing in the kind of area where they lived and it's all about the tension that emerges between them as Shirley kind of like struggles with this novel and the ways in which her interactions with Odessa Young's character kind of influence the direction the novel is going and it's an incredibly taut little chamber drama uh, very much in keeping with say uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is the movie that very much reminded me of, you know, four people stuck in more or less just one location for most of the movie. And it's perfectly suited to Josephine Decker's style. Anyone who's seen uh, her previous movie, Madeline's Madeline, or before then, I think her Butter on the Latch, I think was kind of like the, the major one before that. Mm. She's 
incredibly good at using close-ups and a sense of intimacy to create a sense of dread and anxiety and that's all this movie is this sense of things kind of roiling into the surface between these four characters and it's really fantastic i think i hope that you know people start checking it out uh, over the over the course of the year even though you know it's kind of debuted you know in a fairly muted way over here on just on hulu but um it's a movie that i think is is really spectacular and that people should check out well, I've discussed everything that I've watched and I would recommend that. So Sex Education, if you haven't seen it, and Disclosure. But if you just want a little burst of joy, there is this uh, six-second video going around on the internet at the moment that gave me such joy. I, I cried at the beauty of it and made me feel a lot better. And uh, it is a shot of an oven and you think it's just an oven, but who comes out sliding out from under the oven? It's a baby goat and it wags its tail. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I've I've watched that pretty much on a loop since I discovered it. Um, so that's what I'm going to recommend. Great. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to grow, help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.